This episode of the EdTech Podcast is sponsored by PyTop. PyTop is one of the fastest growing EdTech companies out there and has a unique vision to increase access to coding and technical education through project-based learning. PyTop wants to inspire a generation of makers and give them the skills they need in a rapidly changing world. For project-based learning, project plans and much more, go to pi-top.com. The What Matters in EdTech series is produced by the EdTech Podcast and supported by BET. For anyone who doesn't know, BET is the first industry show of the year in the education technology landscape, bringing together over 800 leading companies, 103 exciting new EdTech startups, and over 34,000 attendees. People from over 146 countries in the global education community come together to celebrate, find inspiration, and discuss the future of education, as well as seeing how technology and innovation enable educators and learners to thrive. The BET 2020 seminar programme is CPD accredited and provides over 300 hours of workshops, talks and discussions addressing issues around SEND and inclusion, future tech and trends, well-being, innovation, skills and empowering teaching and learning. In fact, all the areas this podcast series covers across six episodes. To find out more and to register for free, go to www.betshow.com. David Weinberger said, and I've subsequently followed him, he said, um, the value is not in your head or it's not in my head or it's not in Joe's or Bob's or Karen's or, or Susan's head. The value is in the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this fifth episode in our series, What Matters in EdTech, supported by BET. This series is all about the things that matter in education and how and when tech might help. Over our six episodes, we will be looking at themes that shape BET's conference programme in 2020, namely innovation, skills and past episodes including on SEND, future tech and trends, well-being and empowering teaching and learning. If you're a keen bean, you're probably listening to this on your way to BET. If so, make sure you come along to our final recording of the series, which is happening live on Friday at 3.10pm in the main arena. If you're taking it easy and on your way home from BET or listening in from around the world, no sweat, you can catch our final episode in a few weeks. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us using the hashtag EdTechPodcast and BET2020. Yeah, so innovation is all about finding a better way of doing things. Um, you know, and like I was just saying, the thing about innovation is that it has to start at the top with the mission of the organization. Um, you know, if you know the direction of where you want to go and what data points you need to look at and, the, and your uh, 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 performance level, uh, that helps you determine what new ideas that you, that you can focus on. Um, when we know where we want to go, then we can discover the best path to get there. Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel like innovation is one of those words that gets used a lot sometimes, and, and I think probably for different meanings. I think to me, 
really innovation comes down to putting new ideas into practice. So it can be new ways of working, it could be technology and it could be, you know, other other things. But it's about thinking about what problems are out there and um, coming up with new ideas or even using old ideas, but in a different way um, in order to try and change something. Yeah, so I think for me, innovation is uh, the successful outcome of trying something new. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of iteration in innovation. Yeah. Uh, uh, other people would call it failure, and that's you know it's an important part of innovation. Um, I, I, I've been uh, uh, part of a, a, a team at the head of this company uh, trying to innovate for for a long while, and sometimes you go down routes that don't work. Uh, and so I think hand in hand with innovation uh, comes uh, iteration. It's an important thing to, to remember about it. Not all work uh, is going to be successful. Um, innovation is an interesting question to um, contemplate. I mean, I think it's quite simple in teaching in a way that um, it, I would see it as introducing something different with the aim of getting better student learning outcomes. This week's episode is all about, you've guessed it, innovation. What is innovation? How can it be measured and sustained? How can a culture of innovation be developed? And what examples of pedagogical and technological innovation have come to the fore in recent years? In this episode, I speak to a mammoth cast of entrepreneurs, ecosystem developers, academics and educators about the role of innovation. You'll hear about one man's quest to assess virtual reality for education and measure the benefit of this particular innovation. Plus, how Fab Lab experts in Bhutan are proposing what they term balanced innovation, factoring in local needs and contexts. Plus, career technical education in the US, STEAM education in Belgium, a practical framework for project-based learning innovation, an edtech innovation testbed, and why educators are inherent innovators. Phew, we better get started. Yeah, that's a fine question because it's kind of this, um, can be seen as a buzzword if you're not careful. I think to some degree, a willingness to play with live technical ammo, if you will. Uh, willingness to... to um, to R&D. A lot of people say it's a research and development, but sometimes if you want to do some good quality innovation, you got R&D, which is research and deploy. It takes some risks and learn. Um, but really, uh, when it comes to educational technology and innovation, it's keeping track of where the, where the market is going, where, where, where the consumer market is going because in the end our students are going to leave our classrooms and they're going to use the consumerization if you will of the technology literacies that we're going to teach them so it's you have to really spend a lot of time looking at where where you think the market is going now i think you know if we're if we're honest about it if 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 you're not careful and you chase every shiny object you're going to get burned just take a look at how many projects have been killed by google in the past Take a look at all of the direction uh, that we thought, you know, we thought Linux was going to be more than what it ended up being. So you have to you have to be smart about where you're going to um, take that technology and balance it with 
where you think it's it's kind of like you know if you ever played one of those games where you where you see on television where you have this uh, velvet bag and you reach your hand in and there's three black chips and one red uh, and you know you stick your hand in and you pull out the red chip you win a car or something you know it's kind of the same way when it comes to innovation and technology you have to reach into that sea of opportunity and pull out uh, a piece of technology that you're going to introduce to your faculty now the the, the real challenge here is with educators is whatever you pull out of that that your bag of tricks if you will has to have a high impact on the pedagogy with the least amount of time um, on the teacher because all technology is always front end loaded in, in, in terms of time so if I make a mistake and I play with live ammo and I and I decide we're going to research and deploy and I say take a take a shot at this um, and I fail uh, the credibility the amount of time that is lost on that teacher's period uh, uh, in their classroom can be devastating they're going to lose trust in your ability to to move forward so you have to be extremely careful on that and remember you know that if a student plays with a piece of technology and it doesn't go anywhere or it has no impact or value to them they've got plenty of time right they're they're young they they can fill it in I, i'm broadly speaking of course but when you're talking about an educator time is really is the currency you know you don't necessarily see the literacies paying off it within the first year or something so let's say you want to bring coding into your into your curriculum you may not see the impact of coding in grade five or six you may see it in grades 12 and, and up into the universities so they have to be the balance. And um, you have to be able to sustain it. You have to sustain it financially. You have to sustain innovation with, with the human capital, with our tech department, for example, the department that I run, um, has to be sustainable. It's uh, it's not nearly as cut and dry as maybe uh, innovation is tried to be portrayed on a lot of websites that claim to be innovative. So innovation is the use of a new idea or method. Innovation is often crucial to the continuing success of any organisation or its people. But how is innovation sustained? A working culture open to new ideas and collaborations is essential, if not easy. Um, it's, it's what, I've got this, this thing about uh, the interaction between um, technology and academics and university and people who um, uh, are interest, like me are interested in pedagogy. And, and, I, and I think it's got to do with a sort of um, a, a transitional period that we are going through. Uh, if you go back 30 years, say, when, to when I was first an academic, as an academic, you did everything yourself. You prepared the course, you did the teaching, you did the, the assessment uh, and so on. And you consulted with people when you designed the course, but basically you did most of the things yourself. Um, I certainly did and, I, and my colleagues did. Um, but that's no longer true. Uh, for us to produce a, a new course at NTU now involves people from the Centre for Teaching and Learning, uh, people from the Centre for IT Services, uh, in, in other words, learning designers, pedagogical people, creating the, the kind of learning outcomes with the faculty and a, and a good course outline, plus all of the uh, educational uh, technology resources. It's really teamwork. Uh, and that changes the, the nature of the academics' um, identity, I think, in relation to their own work. Mm. And it also involves people who have different areas of expertise. 
And that has often not been a very easy relationship. So I've been, when I was at the University of New South Wales, there was tension between the EdTech people and the people in the Centre for Teaching and Learning. And uh, I've seen that at a number of universities. It's as if everybody's got their own territory, but they have to work together. Um, and I've, I've been calling it, and I'm, you know, I would quite like if I get time to write about this, um, I've been calling it blended learning, blended expertise. And I think that it's quite interesting that we try to encourage students to do teamwork. Uh, and, in fact, that's become a major part of the, the curriculum, um, certainly at NTU. Uh, but we don't um, work on our own teamwork a, a lot of the time. And I think that part of this transitional period is for those people who are involved in constructing courses to learn how to work together and to understand each other's different areas of expertise so that it does become blended learning and blended expertise. I think this is quite a, an important um, thing to work towards. So we talk about the technology, but we don't often talk about how people in different areas work together to, to embed it in the uh, syllabus. I think connecting the dots is a great phrase to use because what we were really trying to do with it is is um, get schools the information they need from ed tech companies with less of the risk. So, you know, often schools will say to us that it's difficult because it's a big investment to um, to embark on some of the technology products that are out there, both in terms of money, but also in terms of the disruption that that can, you know, do to a school if, if suddenly they're asking all their teachers to um, to join in on a new platform. So we hope that this will give them an easier way to try something out in a more structured environment where they can really understand and get to grips with what um, how that product's working for them. Um, you know, with with um, support from us and from our external evaluator, we're working with the University of Durham to help us um, carry out those evaluations. So we've got that academic rigor as well. And then the EdTech companies themselves get the opportunity to work with a new group of schools to try it out and, and as I say, get some really good, robust evidence about what's working, um, which I think some of them can struggle to do otherwise. Well, yeah, so I think that there's two key pieces there, right? So the first off is, and you have to create a, 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 a collective sense of purpose, right? So your students, everybody involved needs to have that sense of community, of ownership. Um, and second, and this is what I said before, like when we developed our program here, you have to have a clear sense of direction. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't know what the end result is, then you're just going to be all over the place. Um, but if you know where you want to go, uh, what that result is, you're going to be able to keep moving forward, you know, and keep, and keep sustaining innovation. You know, I think um, everybody has to some degree, differing degrees, of course, uh, a desire for a sense of adventure and growth. And if you're too prescriptive, if you're too, you know, making sure that you have a level of success, mm. um, you really box in the children because the children, they don't know. They want to play. They want to explore uh, their idea. You know, in, in many ways, you know, when you when you do it well, all I can tell you is when you know you've hit that sweet spot of innovation with students is it's as if your children have intellectual Tourette's, right? We can do this and boom, we can, we can, we can do that. You know what I mean? They're running all over the place and you can just see the synaptic receptors firing with, with really cool ideas, man, you know? And you want to be able to capture that. 
at the same time, you want to get to an endpoint, right? You know what I mean? You can't have all, you know, enthusiasm without any any deliverables, right? Because in the end, you have to be able to measure, you know, um, uh, you put a kid in playing, you know, Minecraft, for example, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for learning. But an unbridled, uncontrolled playing of Minecraft is just playing Minecraft with no value to the pedagogical process. So, um, you know, I think after 20 years of doing it, I can tell you I know when that is the case. But if you were to ask me to to tell you how do you necessarily arrive at that, the only the only way I can say is make incremental failures and um, take, you know, make low impact mistakes and then take bigger risks as you as you go along. But educators, by the very nature, um, are forced to be risk averse. And that is to suggest it's not a knock on an educator by any stretch of the imagination. I'm the classroom teacher myself. Um, but it's that, you know, how long before you lose the class? So let's say you take a risk on a piece of technology that your tech director and the tech team is really pumped about. And you write your lesson plans the night before and you prepared everything and, the, and everything's set and ready to go. Um, but something goes wrong, you know, something goes awry and it always will. It's that technology hates everybody equally, right? So it's, it's something will happen. And when that happens, how long before you lose that class? Mm -hmm. Two minutes, maybe three at the max. And you can blow a full 80 minute block on a poorly planned, overly enthusiastic, uh, decision, um, if you're not careful. So, um, innovation, I love it, uh, but I can tell you, I've chewed more than a few fingernails wondering if this was going to be the right call, um, and, uh, I, and for the most part, I win. Most part, mm -hmm. children win on innovation, but it's scary. Karl Malaki and Swang Lundup work at Fab Lab Bhutan. Here they talk about innovation through the story of the four harmonious friends. The story refers to an elephant standing under a fruit tree carrying a monkey, a hare and a bird. The animals try to work out which one is the oldest and the ensuing scene demonstrates how we all have cognitive diversity and perspective to bring to the table. It's an illustration of the cooperation we like to talk about as a 21st century skill but told in an ancient tale. Uh, like what we have written in the mail, uh, so... For us, innovation is a philosophy and an excellent uh, vehicle of diversity. In Bhutan, our society's mental blueprint or mental infrastructure is based on the four harmonious friends. All the Buddhists from childhood to old age can relate to this story and thus uh, like Bhutan innovation framework is based on this four harmonious friends. Uh, actually, the, the four harmonious friends uh, is a story or is a, we like to believe that it was happening in uh, a thousand years back or something like that. So actually the beauty of these uh, four harmonious friends is that like there's like a four different animals, uh, like an elephant, a rabbit, a monkey and a bird. So these uh, four different, uh, different uh, animals with differences of their own nature as well as uh, their size and everything. So there was once uh, there was a tree that was grown, and then uh, on this tree that everybody wants to uh, claimed they have the rights to have this uh, fruit. So then they started uh, uh, debating uh, within each other, uh, where the bird was saying that actually it is me who have the rights to eat that fruit because I brought the uh, seed <laughs> to this. Uh, and then the the monkey said that well, when you brought the seed, then seed uh, the monkey was also contributing to that. Equally, like a uh, Elephant was saying that 
elephant was giving the uh, what you call watering that seed so that became the tree and so in the end actually despite their size and despite the differences they found out that actually uh, the fruit that has uh, blossomed from the tree was actually a collaborative effort mm -hmm. you know uh, yes. So, so this, yeah. So this is why, like, uh, despite your size, despite your differences, it is all about collaboration, collaboration. that you can actually yes. live together in the uh, just and harmonious society. And this is a story that actually reflects to each and every single individual of Bhutanese throughout Bhutan. And I think uh, uh, innovation is a philosophy, also, uh, uh, you know, where the, 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 the for the diversity to to roll out in the world where we can solve the local problems or local challenges. I think it's equally mm -hmm. imp important that before we really like uh, roll out our ideas or innovative ideas into the world, we should first reflect, uh, you know, uh, with mindfulness and reflections, and then really like uh, come in terms and condition with your worldview that is in harmony again with mm. the, the, the local reality, right? There's a kind of part of this work is a shift from things being top down to bottom up bottom and up. allowing yeah. the people to embrace innovation and come up with <clears throat> ideas on their own so yeah can you talk a little bit more about that idea and, and how mm. that's also playing out uh balanced innovation is probably the best measurement tool bhutan has pioneered measuring and targeting gross national happiness as its national goal rather than the norm of gross domestic product for development endeavors and it has been a leader in becoming not just carbon neutral, but carbon negative. But somehow this is a top-down approach. In order for us to successfully measure the balance innovation, our founders have coined gross, uh, that is us, we did uh, gross local happiness. The, this is a, like a bottom-up approach and it complements our government's top-down gross uh, national happiness. Yes, uh, I think uh, the, the, the whole approach of uh, gross uh, national happiness or gross local happiness or the four harmonious friends, basically it means to have a, a, a pursued the middle path uh, journey in whatever uh, uh, works of life or, or activities that one is pursuing in his day-to-day uh, uh, -day life. So here we find that uh, like by incorporating the, uh, the tr ancient traditional wisdoms and philosophy into this uh, innovation metrics or measurement, at, uh, we generally believe that like uh, the, the balanced innovation is only the way forward uh, because innovation can be many things. Whatever innovation we are talking about, if we have a balanced innovation, for example, like uh, having a, a, a firm rooted in the local reality as well as like uh, being ambitious and being vigorous of one's uh, pursuit. So either way around, I think in the end of the day, I think with the, the balanced uh, approach uh, of innovation, it would be very important for us, uh, especially for our Buddhist society. Yeah? So, sustaining innovation is often about developing a culture open to ideas. But let's be clear, constant change is exhausting too. In this way, having some framework for new ideas to be developed, tested and implemented is useful, especially in the early stages. Here's just two examples of where that's happening. First up, project-based learning. Uh, I'm Jesse Lozano. I'm one of the co-founders of PyTop. Uh, at PyTop, we're a creative learning company and we really focus on giving teachers the tools to put project-based learning in their schools with a specific focus on computer science uh, and new technology skills uh, that students might need for jobs in, say, robotics or AI. Yeah, so um, 
in the beginning, I was, I was, uh, I suppose I've been doing, uh, you know, project-based learning implementation for six years now. And, uh, I used to think of it like when I got past three years, I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's a, like the length of time, a university degree. Um, <laughs> and now it's six and I'm like, wow, I've really been doing this uh, for quite a while. So my thinking, uh, around project-based learning and, and, uh, and the sort of standardization of project-based learning has uh, has changed. It's gone from a, a sort of not knowing very much about it at all, but having a product that that was um, particularly apt in that area to uh, gaining a lot more knowledge about it and thinking that, um, well, project-based learning inherently shouldn't be uh, standardized. Um, but then uh, as we look at sort of the needs of mass education, I do think it's important to have a base standard uh, of project-based learning um, and a sort of at least a, a, a guidebook on, on how to start implementing it in your, uh, in your classroom. And, and really, for me, the reason for that, um, you know, those small steps to, to take uh, in a pretty instructional way, it's better to have some form of project-based learning than no project-based learning. And it's important to be able to start with that. Uh, and it's important to have a vision as to what you're trying to achieve in your classroom. And that's a lot easier if you have a sort of guidebook per se. And that's why we've written a, a guidebook on how to implement um, project-based learning in your classroom. It goes through questions that you can ask yourself to evaluate what kind of learning you want to uh, uh, achieve in the classroom. Uh, you know, do you want your projects to be student-centered or teacher-driven? Um, as a teacher, you know, how much of a facilitator do you want to be in those projects? Uh, and um, and sort of, you know, how structured do you want these lesson plans uh, or or these, uh, you know, your classroom to be? So there's a lot of there's a lot of those um, questions that you should uh, ask, and I think that that is the 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 primary focus of our guide. It's um, giving you those those um, sort of driving questions as an educator and through answering those questions you'll learn a lot about how you want to put PBL in your classroom and how you how you can and I would just caveat all of that with um, you know once you've done it yourself and you've implemented a, a sort of standardized version of, of PBL you then, you know, that's where the, that's what we, that's sort of where the fun, fun comes in. It's like, it's like learning anything new, mm. like uh, learning an instrument when you, at first you're going to be playing everybody else's songs until you can become uh, uh, really proficient. And then you start playing your own music. And it's the, exactly the same with PBL. You need that um, sort of standard lean into it. And then you can start uh, going off piste. And, and sort of doing your own stuff once you've um, once you've really become an, an expert in it. I love that. Yeah, it's all about learning the rules so you can break them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like learn grammar and then you can write Samuel Beckett plays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can only have the worst grammar when you know all of it. <laughs> yeah, although uh, I do challenge that methodology some days. Also helping with frameworks to get started are the Department for Education and Nesta. I'm Nancy Wilkinson and I work at Nesta, um, which is an innovation foundation um, that works in the UK for social good. My role there is to lead our work on technology and education, um, and that involves a number of different things, really. So um, we are at the moment leading a partnership with the Department for Education, delivering some bits of their um, ed tech strategy, which I'm sure I'll talk a bit more about. 
um, but we also do research and policy work. So I just look after everything EdTech, really. What we're doing with the Department for Education is actually in two parts. So um, the main objectives of this is to help schools and colleges make more effective use of technology in England. Um, and the two parts of the program is one, um, a grant funding program where we're working at the moment with 15 edtech organisations to help them improve and grow and evaluate their products. And we're also, as you um, rightly said, working on um, what we're calling the edtech innovation testbed. Um, and that is to help to connect schools and colleges with edtech products so that they can trial them. So we give them some support to help evaluate those products in their context so we can learn better about what impact EdTech is having in the classroom, um, but also how it's being used and in what way. So we can really learn about um, both to improve the products and how they're used in schools, but also really understand which products are making the most difference in schools. Thinking about innovation in the context of education, Let's not forget that whilst perhaps schools are in the most part risk-adverse, educators are inherently innovative, tackling changing circumstances on a daily basis. Here's Nico Lindholm from EduSpace in Singapore reminding us of just that. Entrepreneurs, usually they, they think that, OK, if I just understand uh, what they do with mathematics or English language or whatever tool they mm. are creating, then I understand what the schools need. But that's actually not the point. They need to spend time in the school. They need to feel, touch, smell, mm. even taste school air in a way uh, in order to get uh, get an understanding what's what's going on so with these models when we create the created the, the test bed or we, we call it an innovation platform in finland because learners and educators are not test subjects they are innovators so mm-hmm. therefore i don't see that uh, they should be that that should be called a test bed it should be called an innovation platform but it's really important they are involved and, and that the entrepreneurs needs to, they need to spend time in the classroom in order to understand the busyness of the daily life in the classroom. What kind of cacophony it can be when, when <laughs> you have 20 kids running around. So you can't really design edtech products that have 20 different buttons before you can use them in the classroom. You, can, you need to have one. So... With this in mind, let's delve into some examples of innovation across the education sector, some working with PyTOP to deliver project-based learning and some working on other innovations. First up, Dr. Peter David Looker, a man on a mission to understand better the place of innovative VR technology in education. Absolutely delighted to have Dr. Peter David Looker, uh, formerly until very recently the head of teaching, learning and pedagogy division at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, and now chief learning officer at Eon Reality on the line. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Sophie. Good to be here. As you said, I'm currently uh, the chief learning officer at Eon Reality. I've literally been here for a week. Prior to that, uh, for the last 10 years, I've been um, head of teaching and learning at Nanyang Technological University, or NTU, and um, I was doing this kind of uh, development in learning and teaching for a while at the University of New South Wales, but I actually s- started my working life as an academic, uh, and I was uh, teaching and researching for about 15 years before I jumped over into teaching and learning development. One of the things I'm interested in at Eon Reality is to be able to evaluate the, uh, the, the technology 
as we're going along in order for it to be pedagogically valuable. In other words, it's again, it's getting past the wow factor. Mm. I mean, everybody's impressed with a- AVR. You know, it's impressive. It's fun. Um, my son and I kind of play games and so on, and, you know, we're both impressed with this kind of thing. But what kind of meaning has it got for um, learning and not just learning but, but, but actually deep learning rather than, than surface learning? Um, and so that's what's driving me to, to work here. And I'm really interested in what this can do particularly in relation to changing student assessment. Um, I think that the, the, the elephant in the room at all universities, for me, is still student assessment. I think we uh, are doing some great teaching in universities now. We're doing some really interesting things. And then we fall back on the same old assessment. Mm, yeah. and, 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 you know, so what are we assessing? I mean, I'll give you an example of, of where I think this can be uh, wrong. Um, I was working with somebody at NTU who was really keen to look at uh, new teaching practices in mathematics and to do a, a, a comparison of a control group and, a, and an experimental group in terms of the way that he was teaching. And then he wanted to use as a measure of that uh, whether the students who were, who were in the experimental group um, did better in their exams. And I said to him, you know, it's not going to tell you. And the reason it's not going to tell you is because the exam is not capable of capturing the different kind of learning that those experimental group students have undergone because the exam actually is measuring something quite limited, suitable to the old way of teaching. But you need a different kind of test, you know, in order to be able to check whether that's going to be effective or not. Um, and and I, so I think that with the advent of digital exams, which is happening, um, I know that, for example, at the University of Utrecht, uh, they've got something like 65% digital exams now. The thing about it is you can assess in a different way. And, and there is the opportunity, obviously, for uh, both augmented and virtual reality to be involved in that. But what is the interplay between pedagogic and technological innovation? I spoke to the fully charged Garland Green to find out more. Yes, yes, lovely, lovely. Well, hello. How are you, Sophie? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? You're very sprightly. Well, I'm uh, well. I'm running high on octane, uh, <laughs> full strength coffee. Well, I am Garland Green, and I am the director of technology uh, at an international school in Europe. Um, I'm, I run the technology department, and I'm responsible for not only the nuts and bolts, if you will, the the bits, the bytes, the box. But also I'm in charge of educational technology and pushing innovation forward when it comes to the issue of pedagogy. Um, 20 years as a tech director this year, over 28 years as an educator. So I've kind of been around the block a little bit. What are some of the examples where you think that bringing new technologies and new ways of delivering teaching has paid off? Uh, so I'll take within the last year uh, where we took a risk. Um, where we had a young student who was in, uh, once he was in grade five in, the, in our elementary school, and he was passionate about aerodynamics, just loved aerodynamics. And um, he wanted to, he had found, and his father had found a website in which you could upload your uh, a, a, a model 
and it could tell you about the aerodynamics of the software just momentarily. So he uploaded a few pictures of of, of a Boeing and of a 737 or something. He got really excited about it, and now he wanted to create his own 3D model of his own idea about an aircraft. But he's grade five or six. I think it was five or six. And um, so we said, or his teacher said to him, well, build something in Tinkercad and then take it to the tech department and have them look at it for you. So um, uh, the teacher said, well, he's built something. And so he brought it in, was really excited, and we opened up in Tinkercad. And it was a uh, pyramid with a round ball, like a nose of a clown stuck on top of it. And, and the child had gotten stuck on this issue of, of Tinkercad. So the realization is, is that his enthusiasm for wanting to understand aerodynamics was blocked by the fact they would have to learn how to do 3D modeling in order to arrive at that place. And it really, he was really um, disappointed by that. So we said to him, I said, however, there's an option here. Let's rethink this a little bit. Let's, let's go outside of it. And so we handed him a piece of Sculpey's and we said, why don't you take this home and sculpt the aircraft in your mind in the Sculpey that you see. Take it and then bring that back to us and we'll take a look at it for you. So about uh, three, four days later, he was really excited. He brought it in and he had a, an aircraft um, made it out of clay, right out of this uh, plasticine. And uh, we said, all right, so we put that on our 3D scanner and we spun that around. We scanned it. Now we have a wireframe uh, piece of it. And now we can upload that, right? So we uploaded that piece into this, this software. We subsequently downloaded and paid for a version of the software. And, uh, and here and we were off and running. We're like, well, okay, you see you have drag here. And so you could take that back into, um, I think at the time we were using Blender, I think. Uh, and we just rounded off a corner here. And it kind of, so it was a three-week project of that kid on his own time coming in and, and, and sculpting this aircraft. And he finally got the aircraft that, that he wanted. In his mind, it was exactly the aircraft that he wanted. So we 3D printed it out for him, made, it, made uh, three, four copies of it so he could give it to his mom and his grandmother and his brother. And uh, we had, we'd achieved the learning, right? The learning was the important piece. So the technology got in the way of the vision and the excitement, and yet we were able to find a way to work around that in a good old-fashioned, hands-on, using a piece of clay. You know, let's get it there. And then we brought it in, and we, we tinkered, if you will, and, and, and got it around. So that, that's the most recent example, I think, of a piece of innovation, right? We combined multiple techniques to arrive at what the child wanted, which was to understand aerodynamics. The technology was just a vehicle to get there. It wasn't the end all, the be all, but it was the it was the it was the piece. So that was exciting uh, to Fantastic. see that excitement on that on that uh, that baby's face. Uh, we got in contact through PyTop. So have, yes, are you also working with them in some capacity? Well, initially, uh, like all things in technology, in many ways, it's because I had a relationship working with with Duncan Kemp and in a previous life um, that we had done some innovative work. And I tracked him down because I had found out that he was working with PyTop. And he and I began the process of, of talking about it. And, of course, Duncan understood that I like to play with live ammo and I like to make these tests. The reason why I got excited about that particular technology was because um, what we were talking about, the issue is what, what were the barriers to entry when our goal, our output was we wanted to find the best ways to introduce into the curriculum uh, Python coding, right? And we knew and, and when we love the technology of, of the Raspberry Pi, um, but, you know, we, we thinking back toward the um, example I gave you, the young man who made that um, Tinkercad model, right, who was hit by the, the, the barriers to entry of technology, 
getting kids to solder things and, and, and get them engaged to try to make things work would have been too much. It would have been too much because we didn't have any background in the lower grades. But PyTop uh, gave us an opportunity to have this all-in-one Raspberry Pi with a fan, and, and they had their, their, their plate right there that we could just plug things into. So we were able to get the power of the Raspberry Pi that we wanted. The uh, physical form factor really lowered the barriers to entry. A child could, could understand, I can click this in here and I can click that in there. And now we're connected to the sensors. The final piece that was really great that we were working with that piece of technology, like they have a website that supports and is a really first step. And they've done a lot of work with, with um, getting the early stages and steps. And then um, what, I, what I like about it, and I know that there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily willing to take risks on startups or younger, smaller companies. And I, on, I, I go the other direction. These are the people that I want to start to engage in because they have more of a willingness and, and an opportunity for us to share our ideas of innovation with them and their willingness to, to listen to us so we can impact what they're doing. So for us, a great piece of technology, working with a company that was really forward-thinking and innovative, lowered the barriers to entry for us. And in the end, I got to teach Python on a Raspberry Pi to the, to the kids that I wanted. In, in the context of EdTech, I think um, actually there's a new dimension of innovation, if you like, um, and that's the interface between technology and learning. Mm. You often hear people like me, <laughs> pedagogical people, say things like you must put the pedagogy first, technology must be led by pedagogy and so on. And um, I agree with that to a large degree. But also I think technology has opened up possibilities that weren't there before. And so I think there's a, a degree of innovation in that. Um, there are new things for which we then go and find a good pedagogical use. A, a, a quick example of that would be the ability to use mobile phones to survey students in a lecture. Uh, I wish I'd had something like that in the 1980s when I had no idea what students were really thinking. Okay. Um, but, the, but, the, but the ability to get significant and immediate feedback from students, I think, is a brilliant technology-led teaching innovation. And it started with the technology and then we found a use for it. Um, so I think technology can take you to places that we haven't been before and the point's not so much about whether it's technology-led or pedagogy-led uh, rather than, you know, it's, it's always used with a pedagogical purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And I've sort of seen this debate evolve slightly online. So I agree with you, you know, um, the last three years has very much been um, everything must be pedagogy led. And then people have also realised that actually, if you are starting to work with technology, the user experience of that technology is you know, can be a game changer or, or, or kind of um, kill off a project if it's not good enough. So it, it, it does yeah. have um, as critical a part to play. Um, mm. and, and the two are sort of intertwined as opposed to, you know, in ranked order. Exactly. That's right. I mean, I think the most important thing, as I say, is that it's it's got a purpose. It's not just there for the sake of being there. And I think that's in a way, that's how you sort out the difference between valuable technological change and stuff that's just novel. This interweaving between pedagogy and technological innovation is tightening as countries prepare for the fourth industrial revolution. Well, hi, Thomas. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. 
Thank you for having me. Um, to kick off, could you please introduce who you are and what you do in your own terms to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is TJ Thoss, and I teach uh, ethical hacking and smart home technologies at Orange Technical College, uh, Mid-Florida campus here in sunny uh, Orlando, Florida. So I've been teaching for about 15 years now. Um, the students in my program, they go through training for their CompTIA A+, and Network+, Plus uh, uh, industry certifications. Uh, then they can also choose a specialization track, uh, including cybersecurity, mm-hmm. which is based around the uh, uh, EC Council Certified Ethical Hacker uh, Frameworks. Uh, they can also choose to go down the Cisco CCNA track or uh, the uh, Smart Home Technician track, which is based around the uh, CDS Electronic Systems Certified uh, Frameworks. Yeah, so uh, my students range anywhere from 18 years old uh, actually 16 years old, because we have students here that are currently in high school. Um, so they can come to us for half of their school day, and then they're at their high school for the other half of their day, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to, I want to say the oldest person I've had in my class was a 70-year-old gentleman <laughs> uh, who wanted to come here because he was starting a third business with a friend of his getting into IT work. I would say most of my students are 18 to 25 years old, young adults, just graduating high school. Um, you know, they're really just looking to, to get into a, a, uh, a specific career within a short amount of time. Um, you know, that's one of the great things about, about our school here is, uh, you know, our students are able to come to us and get very specific uh, focused training in, in a career Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our programs, uh, the students are able to graduate within, within about one year. So my program, cause it's really two programs takes about a year and a half for a student to go through. Um, and then the great thing is our students actually leave here with no debt whatsoever. Um, and then they can leave here. They go right out, get a job working in the industry that they want to go work in. Um, I mean, that brings us on to, we talked a little bit about career technical education, but throughout your career, you know, bringing the curriculum together and developing new courses, what sort of pedagogic and technological innovations have you seen over that time? I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, a big piece of my cybersecurity class is teaching Python scripting. So uh, sometime last year, I discovered a PyTop. It actually lets me teach my students Python scripting uh, while they build and design small uh, little electronic projects. Um, and it's super inexpensive. And so this one device, right, it uh, allowed me to find a way to teach a pretty boring subject matter in a fun and interactive way. Um, you know, and that's where innovation comes in. You, know, you can't keep doing and teaching the way that we've always done it. Um, you know, we need to make education a lot more fun and engaging for our students. So I'm actually working with uh, the EC Council just kind of on that. Uh, they're getting ready to release a, a new product called CyberQ for ethical hacker training. And so this is some really cool gamified simulation software that lets my students get some more real-life practical hands-on uh, training. And because it's all gamified and everything, they've played around with it a little bit. They're super engaged. You know, they're learning all, you know, what they need to learn and everything without even realizing it. Um, you know, and it's that sort of stuff, again, that, you know, that, that, that helps us to motivate and change how we teach 
our students. To develop anything like this, the first thing that 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 you have to do is you know have a vision, have a focus in mind. Um, so what we did, we spoke with local industry partners, um, you know, and asked them, "What do you need? Uh, you, you know, where where are these holes in your industry? Mm-hmm. You know, are there jobs for our students? I don't want to train uh, students and go through all this and then they can't find jobs." Um, you know, what are the skills that are needed for those jobs? Um, and then you look at, you know, how do we leverage resources and everything to make this program a lighthouse program in the area? Mm-hmm. Um, and once you have all of that information and you know that what you're going to develop is sustainable, um, you know, then you can start building, building up from there. So, you know, we talked to industry and they said, you know, there's a huge need for cybersecurity especially here in the uh, Central Florida area. And we just took it from there. Uh, in, uh, in 2019, we have uh, worked on a pilot project uh, called Unleash Bhutan, Learning by Doing in swift col- uh, collaboration with UNICEF Bhutan and also um, uh, with the Ministry of Education. That's called PyTop and FabLab Bhutan. And we did this pilot project with the... Uh, we have in Bhutan 13... <coughs> Uh, integrated youth centers but in the first phase pilot project we took like four integrated youth centers across Bhutan like and during this 12 months we have successfully trained more than like 20 trainers from this youth centers and outreach over 600 youths then we also imposed like 50 percent mandatory for female participation and uh, we have successfully uh, uh, completed that pilot project in uh, 2019 and now in 2020 also like the UNICEF they want to uh, like uh, continue this uh, project again so we have a meeting very soon with the UNICEF. If I may also add to this now you're uh, asking about the pedagogy uh, approach to this when it comes to the skills uh, one one issue that we found in bhutan was that like uh, we are very much a result oriented uh, uh, individuals in bhutan so far we have only been focusing on the results uh, we are not really into process so therefore like uh, whatever whether we are rolling out the pie top or whether uh, we are rolling out the first global uh, challenges first by the way it stands for for inspiration or recognition of science and technology so throughout this process we have been very mindful to implement the process orientation you know, where we have the probably team collaborations you know critical thinkings design thinkings so all these things has been uh, 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 systematically, we have ensured inside the process. So, really, I think the process orientation or pedagogic side has been uh, part and parcel of our activities uh, uh, over the last many years in Bhutan. Uh, last year, we have uh, carried out a small pilot project with the rural uh, beehive keepers in central Bhutan. Hmm. So, here, the, the way we have manifested the, the fourth industrial revolution to the local reality or to the local society was. Our team has visited this uh, place where uh, in the rural uh, village, met with these uh, communities, uh, the beekeeper uh, uh, communities. And there we found out that like uh, 
for them to, in order to build one hive it usually it takes them more than like uh, eight seven to ten eight days, days yes. seven eight days to to build one uh, uh, hive so then we reached out uh, on the internet of things and then we found out that uh, one of the fab labs in barcelona they have actually developed uh, uh, cat files computer edit design files which we actually downloaded in bhutan iterated it and then uh, build it in a matter of 30 minutes <laughs> and then we went back to the uh, rural uh, beehives uh, cooperatives and we have installed a, a few uh, beehives uh, there in that places. And then again, further discussion with the beehive keepers there, we found out that the older generation in Bhutan, they are actually very much, uh, they know about, about all these uh, hives and stuff like that, but they are very much interested to incorporate, uh, bringing their youths. The children's too. So here, once again, we went up and then uh, did some uh, online research, and then we found out that again in Barcelona they have the beehive sensor, which, uh, which is based on solar. So this again, uh, we brought it to Bhutan. We uh, value engineered that, and then we installed. So in this way, we are also trying to invite the youth to pursue in this uh, uh, hive's uh, journey. Uh, that could uh, give them uh, ultimately greater employability as well as sustainability. So this is uh, one concrete uh, example that we actually carried out last year. Uh, likewise, the, down the line now, in order to harness the potential of the fourth industrial revolution in the form of 3D printings and 3D, uh, open source materials, so now we are actually also going to revive the health sector in Bhutan, where we are going to introduce a locally built uh, 3D printers that could actually take care of the prosthetics, lamps, all these things. Uh, not only that, we are also now uh, discussing very seriously with the Minister of Health, the, the government of Bhutan, who, to, to transport the medical deliveries because Bhutan is like uh, high up in the very mountains. mountainous. Very mountainous. And most of the rural communities are living in the pockets of these uh, high, high mountains. So for us, it's very expensive uh, for, uh, for individuals to go and carry the medicine and time and also very... Uh, uh, important aspect is that like if you could deliver the medicine in uh, in, in time on time on on time then so here we are now exploring about the drones how we can uh, exp uh, trans transport the medicines to these uh, far from communities as well as in emergency cases we can also do what you call uh, send the bloods Blood. uh, to these uh, individuals uh, yeah. yeah and also like uh, due to the climate change in bhutan uh, uh, and and then the uh, the fast uh, retreat of the glaciers mountain. So we have also like uh, often when people think that climate change is only where the low lying countries are affected mm. because of the rise of the ocean, but that's not uh, enough because in Bhutan, uh, like uh, being up in the Himalayas due to the climate change, so many glaciers are retreating fast, and and then they are uh, uh, forming uh, what you call the lakes outburst, and then this. Last year, we, two years back, we had one of these lake outbursts and it has a catastrophic uh, uh, damage uh, down yeah. in the valley. And now we have more than 1,000 uh, plus uh, uh, lakes Lake. that is uh, right now uh, taking up. So here we are again trying to use the drones to do the uh, measurements, Survey. surveying, all this stuff. So these are the, uh, the projects that we have actually uh, in the pipeline, probably already by this day, we, are, we will be able to develop some locally uh, drones that we could actually use to uh, take care of these challenges. But with all this innovation going on, how can the impact of new ideas be measured? I think um, it's necessarily a little bit messy sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I wonder if we should make a distinction too between innovation and novelty here, because I think a lot of the stuff that's thrown to us at universities is has a certain novelty value, but it can't be sustained. So the first point um, of being able to sustain something is the initial evaluation of it. And that's not always easy because people come to the university and they've got this, this new piece of technology and it's, you know, it's impressive and you go, oh, wow, that's wonderful, you know, you can do all these things. But how you evaluate it and how you evaluate it um, for the longer term and how you evaluate it at, for um, use at scale is, is actually often very difficult. Um, over the last 20 years, uh, in my position as an academic developer, I've seen lots of things that were sold as innovative that actually turned out to be nothing more than novelty. Um, and, you know, I think novelty can't be sustained. So what I think is that real innovation is something that is both new and also at the same time has meaningful and lasting impact, uh, maybe even leading to new innovations. And then what you need to do is to have a very clear program um, or vision of why you want to use something, what you think it's going to be used for in terms of the student outcomes. And then you just have to do the hard work of looking at its evaluation over time. And I think this is where a lot of universities fall over. Um, I think they, they haven't actually set up the processes for really good evaluation of the um, uh, the educational technology that they begin to use. Some do uh, kind of hard-nosed research into their own teaching practice with technology, but not very many. And I think I've always liked the idea that came up in the book by Vanita Dandria and uh, David Gosling, that you need to conceptualise uh, a university as a whole learning organisation. Um, and they suggest in their book, Teaching and Learning in Higher Education, that it's not just disciplinary content that should be subjected to research, but hmm. the everyday practices, including administrative practices of the organisation itself, so that it becomes what they call a learning organisation. And in that way, you're constantly processing the value of any technology that you would introduce. I think it's a great idea, but I don't think many people do it. Uh, and I've seen um, a lot of research that starts out with the intention of doing that, but then people get seduced into the whole thing about publication and giving conference papers and so on, and it doesn't filter into the everyday use of the technology. You get on the, how do you, how do you measure that? <laughs> because actually sometimes people do uh, have an idea and bam, it just works straight away. <laughs> and so how do you measure something that, could take five minutes, but also could take five years. Um, and I think that, that, that that's a little more tricky. Um, and it's something that I, I personally have gone, I've gone on a journey myself of thinking about, well, how do you measure innovation? Because I think uh, innovation, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with project-based learning. In that when you're doing project-based learning, it's kind of the journey that's the reward and not the not the end outcome uh, of of a of a sort of knowing the answer. It's it's all those bits and pieces that go into understanding an answer, and so I think that that's the key really to measuring uh, innovation. Uh, or I, I would really put it in the same basket as how do you measure um, uh, project based learning? It's uh, making sure you're doing things like tying projects 
towards a particular learning objective. So if you have a, a state standard or if you have a, uh, you know, a skill that a student is going to need to uh, know for an exam, uh, that's how you uh, help yourself as an educator to measure innovation or, or project-based learning in the classroom. It's, uh, it's making sure you tie it towards uh, things that are measurable. And knowing that whole process is 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 an important part of of uh, of, of successfully teaching uh, with project based learning and 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 innovation in the classroom. And sometimes, um, sort of innovation seems like this intangible sort of magic fairy dust that um, you know some people are very good at innovating and some people perhaps aren't, or some companies are sort of blessed with it. So. How, how do we actually go about measuring innovation um, and, and, and kind of what are the sort of frameworks that you found to be useful? Yeah, it's a really difficult question, actually. I think it is, you've, you know, you've highlighted the right issue that it's, um, it can be really difficult even just to define what we mean by innovation. Um, at Nesta, we take quite a broad view of, of innovation and that um, can be things like that we might typically think like new technologies or um, you know we have people at Nesta who are experts on AI and VR and all of these kind of exciting things but we also have teams that are really experts at um, people power so getting people to work differently in their communities or um, uh, empowering volunteers to do things um, that can make a real difference in their local area so I think there is a real broad definition of innovation and that makes it harder to measure um, about what's what's working and what's not. Um, I think what we've thought about really carefully in the education team is um, trying to, to support new early stage innovations whilst also uh, maintaining a, um, a robust, um, a kind of robust um, evidence-based look at what's really working. So I think that can be a bit of a um, challenge to get both of those things right at the same time. But um, we use a framework here called the Nesta Standards of Evidence. And that helps um, think about if you're a very early stage organization or even if you're um, a teacher in a classroom trying something new for the first time, then you won't be looking to get a robust huge randomized control trial as evidence for whether your thing is working. But there are different things, tools that you can use, things like a logic model or theory of change or um, some simple pre and post testing that you can use um, to help better understand whether your kind of initial idea or your small scale pilot is working as you develop that into a larger program or if you scale that. Um, and then you can use different kind of standards and levels of evidence to help you monitor whether that's working. Um, so I think that's been really helpful um, for us when we're thinking about working with edtech organizations as well as thinking what's the, the appropriate level of evidence and measurement to be putting on startups, for example. Um, and we're thinking really carefully about that as we work with our um, edtech innovation fund grantees over the next year or so. Um, in the last year or so, we've been working really on a few specific areas. So um, been very focused on assessment, parental engagement and timetabling, which um, are three areas that, you know, working with the, the DFE, we came up with as areas that we thought technology could make a really big difference in. And I think they're actually three 
really interesting kind of category. So obviously assessment is is crucial and is really at the forefront of lots of teachers' minds all the time. But using technology can be used to really enhance that. So we've seen it being used to give really effective feedback, for example, or um, building in technology, building in things that teachers know you know, that the teachers have been doing for a long time, things like retrieval pr practice, but actually that being built into these technology platforms so that the best in kind of pedagogical approaches are also being used in um, these tech platforms, which I think is really interesting. Um, and actually timetabling, something that doesn't feel very, um, very exciting to some people is actually, you know, turned out as one of the most interesting areas that we're working on because it actually makes such a huge difference to how a school is run. Getting a timetable right can make a massive difference to say how much um, time that teachers have, you know, how much they can work flexibly or um, for helping with reducing teacher workload, helping mm. with lots of things of how well a school's run. So something is seemingly kind of simple or behind the scenes as a timetable with the right kind of technology and thought behind it can be really exciting. We've, we're working with Edval um, actually on a really interesting project with that, one of our grantees. Well, I think the problem is, I mean, the nature of innovation itself makes it hard to measure innovation while you're being innovative, right? Um, you know, if you spend all of your time trying to study and figure out if what you're doing is innovative, then you're stifling innovation. Um, I think that that this has to be managed from a long term perspective. Um, you know, so for example, uh, here at our school for our accreditation purposes, there's certain uh, uh, percentage based data that we have to meet, such as uh, program completers, number of students that get their industry certification mm -hmm. pass rates, number percentage of students that get jobs, uh, which is basically what we're all here for. Um, so. Being able to look at that data, which, of course, is after the students have completed the program, but that tells us if what we're doing is is actually being successful or not. Um, so, for example, this past year, we started up a summer uh, IT camp, uh, and the whole focus of that was to introduce students to an IT cybersecurity field. Um, but the cool thing that we were able to do is uh, the students actually got paid uh, to come to this camp. Um, so these are at-risk high school students, uh, and a lot of them come from low socioeconomic areas. So they were able to meet their financial needs to support their families, um, at the same time pursue a career of 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 interest. Um, you know, so and out of tw twenty-eight participants in that camp, uh, fifteen of those students uh, applied and are currently taking IT cybersecurity courses this year. They otherwise would not have been introduced to that and would not have probably would not have enrolled in, 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 in one of these programs. So to me, that's a measurement of success of innovation. So build the foundations of a collaborative workspace open to new ideas. Accept failure as part of the process, but choose your projects carefully. Start small, iterate and build out from there. Use frameworks and goal setting to keep on track review and repeat, and do it all over again. Sometimes it's having that first spark of inspiration which starts new ideas and new innovations. 
So to end this week's episode, our guests give their final shout outs and resource recommendations for you, the listeners. So we have a really good uh, collaboration in so many collaboration yeah. from Professor Nils Gastrofeld, who is the director of Centre for Business and Autumn, MIT. Yeah? Uh, so, so we have also followed his work uh, over many years uh, and uh, read a few of his books and all. And recently, uh, Karma and I had the opportunity to visit Kathmandu in Nepal. And there we met uh, Professor Mahabir Poon, a local Nepalese teacher, and uh, he's a social entrepreneur and activist. And uh, he has literally like uh, sparked so much uh, wisdom as well as like uh, inspiration to, to me, uh, at least, uh, so how I find this uh, Mahabir Poon, he is working in Nepal, was like a very like uh, eye-opener for uh, any individual because, again, uh, everything he does is very much balanced uh, with the local reality. has been a source of inspiration for us. Is uh, the Jugod innovation. I think this is also like, again, uh, this is a really like a, a beautifully written book, which is based on the ancient wisdom uh, that can also maybe... Uh, uh, help us in this uh, food industrial revolution era uh, because I think there we can really like see that uh, how the technology and the ancient wisdom can merge together and as also like uh, now innovation thrives and the, uh, the food industrial revolution is like uh, taking forth leapfrogging and uh, changing every aspect of life then the organizational structure has need to be also changed somehow and here uh, uh, the book by last book uh, from the Google the work rules I think it really defines also the what kind of organizational setup that we we must and we we require in this fourth mm-hmm. industrial revolution, because once again, like a top-down approach, organizations will not really like a succeed. So rather like a flat structure. So these are the uh, 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 things that I think we are trying to look into, and these are the books that at least got uh, inspired us uh, so far. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, for so for those teaching information technology, cybersecurity, um, you know, there's a lot of awesome uh, resources out there. Um, as I've already mentioned, uh, the PyTop uh, and EC Council software, um, you know, we have a really cool trainer here by a company called MarCraft uh, that the students are just absolutely engaged with. It, it's a just really awesome, just hands-on labs and training. Um, another big piece of the puzzle here is the uh, uh, test out training software. It's an online training platform. And then the other, the, uh, the other big piece is getting your students involved in extracurricular activities. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it, find your student organization, like uh, such as uh, Skills USA, that offers competitions and uh, 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 leadership opportunities for the students to get involved in. Uh, personally, I'm very heavily involved in Skills USA, um, and when my students are signed up for competitions and outside events, uh, trust me, they get much more engaged and work a lot harder. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, well, obviously, my first um, uh, suggestions will be some of our brilliant reports that we've produced over the last few years. Um, we we produced a great report um, on AI and education, and I can say that it's great because I didn't write it, so I'm not being okay. too um, too big-headed on that, but it's really, really interesting uh, report on AI and education and thinking about the opportunities and risks um, that are, are in that and um, what we need to be thinking about practically to make the most of, of that. Um, we've also produced another few reports on EdTech, um, which are all on our website, which um, 
would really encourage everybody to have a look at. Um, but I think there's like a range of people really working, particularly in this area of evidence in, in ed tech. Um, so Educate is a fantastic program, which I'm sure your listeners will have um, heard lots about, um, as well as EdTech Impact, which are, um, is, a, is an organization linked to Innovate My School, which is helping, um, helping EdTech products do shorter, small trials um, that they can then publish their findings on their website as a link to get schools to choose. Um, choose different products. Um, we've also had a really great um, conversations with the Chartered College of Teaching recently who are really interested in this area. They have an online course around um, uh, around using technology in, in the classroom, um, which is great. And um, they're just a really fantastic organization that are trying to do some great things for teachers and schools. So um, yeah, we definitely um, recommend that. Oh, well, I mean, there's, there's, um, there, there, there's some, some obvious ones, I suppose. I mean, books, uh, you know, I, I think every, a lot of people have read this by now, but Outliers is just such a great book, um, uh, about, uh, about, uh, you know, people that, um, that do amazing things. So I'd, I'd recommend that highly. Things that I find innovative, uh, Again, I feel like I'm I, I'm playing into a trope here, but I mean I, I don't think you can uh, I don't think you can escape what uh, what you know, Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX and with Tesla. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing <laughs> to put to, to put a short answer to that one. I mean, we uh, could we could be mimicking his uh, his episode on a podcast as we speak, but we won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely had some failures, uh, that's for sure. But I think he's failing into some, some pretty amazing successes, mm. which is a kind of a funny sentence to say. I can go back in time. I can tell you the first time, and I'm going way back in time, was in 1999 when I read the Clue Train Manifesto. Um, and uh, there was all of these guys that were out there and, and, and huge conversations about that. And it was the first time that that uh, I, you know, I had seen in my mind, I had seen the future of where this stuff was going to go. And when I read that particular book, it was the first transformative sense of like, these people get it. I'm not alone, right? I'm not crazy out here. Because um, what a lot of people don't understand about uh, us early adopters and people who were tasked with innovation in education, we had to fight things like the internet is a fad, um, you know, my browser is going to crash and it crashed and, you know, it, it was really just clunky and you had to fight your way through. And when I listened to the Clue Train Manifesto or I read the Clue Train Manifesto and the words that they were saying, that really was the first step that got me thinking differently. And, and the first thing I thought was, I'm not alone. Wow, these people really get it. And then so I started to follow the authors of that particular book. And David, uh, one of the co-authors of the book is, is a guy by the name of David Weinberger. David Weinberger said, and I've subsequently followed him, he said, um, the value is not in your head or it's not in my head or it's not in Joe's or Bob's or Karen's or, or Susan's head. The value is in the conversation. So you can get a group of individuals and you can sit around a table and the, it, it's the uniqueness of the individuals that were in that conversation, that where the value of the conversation exists. New ideas come, and if you'd had that person hadn't been there, they wouldn't have possibly been in a situation where they could have made you think differently about a different thought because of the individuals. So, so I took that into thinking that 
the value is in the conversation. Now, you're starting great conversations with your podcast and, and the work that you're doing. And, and so I, I tie into those things. And to end, a sobering thought. Well, one, of the, one of the things that, you know, I get a bit upset about sometimes is the, that there is, I mean, you would know that this is true, that there's resistance sometimes amongst academics. And in, and in fact, my former boss told me about somebody who last year got very angry about the the use of technology in courses at NTU and and pulled a pen out of his pocket and <laughs> said this, this is all you need to teach and and while i i get where that person is coming from i actually reflected on it afterwards and i thought you know that could be a kind of irresponsible point of mm. view in terms of students because the students are going out into a digital world, you know, and if we're not preparing them for that at the university, then perhaps we're being irresponsible. The world has changed. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if you are teaching in that kind of way and ignoring all of the technology and, and not encouraging students to become digitally literate and all of those kinds of things, then, you know, are you being responsible as a teacher? That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening in and huge thank you to all of my guests, Bet for supporting the series and PyTop for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget, if you'd like to continue the conversation online, use the hashtag EdTechPodcast and Bet2020 or go to the Twitter account at PodcastEdTech or at Bet underscore show on all the social medias. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations, it's the edtechpodcast.com. Many of this week's guests are taking part in the Bet 2020 programme, so do go to betshow.com to dig out timings and register for the event. Have a great week. Okay, great. Thanks, Sophie. Take care and enjoy your evening. You too. Bye. 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 Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Speak to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.